Plasticity is both a good thing and a bad thing though as well. So it's being very mindful of the fact that, you know, if you do enhance plasticity in, in the brain, it has to be then shaped in the way that you want it to be because don't want loads of extra plasticity and then an individual to their, their psychedelic therapy and then go out into the world and start doing all these things that these behaviors that are actually detrimental hello and welcome to the mindfulness experience podcast and official wonderland 2023 conference media partner i'm your host keith fiveson today we are thrilled to have dr amy reichelt a renowned neuroscientist and diet and brain function expert. Dr. Reichel joins us to discuss her talk at Wonderland Conference and the neuroscience of psychedelics. She'll be exploring neuroplasticity mechanisms and its potential use in treating neurological and neurodegenerative disorders. Welcome, Dr. Reichel. Hi. Hey, good to speak with you, Keith. Uh, can I call you Amy? Yep, that's perfectly fine. Uh, Amy, I am just so excited that you're here. And I know you, you've you had a, a, a really busy morning. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we've had to go ahead and coordinate this. But it's really so important that you're at this conference. And the work that you're doing is so important because it's really helping to advance the area of you know neuroplasticity and the area of psychedelics and really helping people to go ahead and show up so i'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your 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 talk and what you'll be talking about at wonderland i know you'll be talking about something about designing the future self which is wonderful because for me that really means sort of envisioning who you are and then moving into the space of actualization right it's it's, you know, where have I been? Where am I now? Where am I going? And then using, you know, the, the the tools at hand to do that. So maybe you can jump into that a little bit and I'll stop talking. No, uh, so the panel that I'll be speaking on is about um, really how we can, as pharmacologists and neuroscientists, and also you know, working with medicinal chemists to be able to really generate these next generation of psychedelic inspired molecules that have the potential for you know, greater safety, greater efficacy, greater durability of improvement for individuals who need these medicines for mental health and neurological health conditions. So we're going to be talking about you know, innovation and how we can you know, use these as tools for the betterment of human well-being, really around the therapeutic design, you know, dosing regimes, mm -hmm. how we can design these molecules that we have closer control over the safety margins so they're more accessible for people who may potentially you know, have reasons why they might not want to engage in you know, taking a psychedelic drug in, in its classical sense mm -hmm. um, and to be able to use these as a platform moving forward for a next generation really of drugs that 
are broadly able to enhance neuroplasticity and that this has both the ability to improve uh, quality of life for individuals who have mental health conditions, knowing that uh, uh, disorders such as um, major depression uh, have a, a component which is really underpinned by the reduction of neuroplasticity, but then also in potentially also neurological disorders or neurodegenerative disorders where individuals are, you know, the brain is basically experiencing stressors inside the brain as opposed to you know external uh, environmental ex uh, stresses and that we've seen from really exciting neuroscience emerging that these molecules have powerful powerful capacity to both propagate synapses so the connections between neurons um to to grow new neurons and then also to start to quash the inflammation that is also set in place by so many uh, conditions that you know, not only predispose individuals to neurodegeneration, but also just you know from from lifestyle and and aging itself. So you know there is is the potential there for you know yeah. so much great discussion. Yeah, yeah. Well, as a as a sixty eight, soon to be sixty eight year old man, I I uh, can appreciate you know the whole idea of cognitive function and also, you know, um, looking at society and looking at what's going on right now. There's a there's really systemic trauma, and I do know that with trauma, you know, individuals have a very hard time, especially if whether or not it's post traumatic trauma post-traumatic stress disorder or, you know, ongoing trauma, they have a very hard time, um, you know, being cognitively functioning, you know, really accessing their prefrontal cortex or their, you know, their hippocampus and, and they're on fight or flight mode all the time. So you're talking about also, more importantly, the research around psychedelics without the hallucinogenic aspect to it. And I'm wondering, is that sort of as a, uh, what what the research is around that and the benefits around that, if you're looking at psychedelics without the hallucina hallucinogenic quality, and really what happens, you know, from a neurological perspective for individuals where everyone's familiar with SSRIs, and we know the, you know, the, nothing's really changed in that area. 50% of it, the efficacy rates aren't really that high. So I'm really wondering your thoughts around this and what, you know, what, 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 what this actually means in terms of, you know, the benefits. Yeah, I think that it's, you know, such a contrast with the established pharmacological treatment of mental health conditions at the moment importantly with with these psychedelic therapies and we're really just starting to even to understand how they can not only be harnessed to treat psychiatric conditions but also now for their potential in neurological conditions so um as you were saying about ssris i mean the one of the key aspects is that you know, these drugs don't work for numbers of people, but potentially their efficacy is down to an increase in neuroplasticity. But it's much weaker than we can see with studies looking at 
um, psychedelics in the 5-HT serotonin uh, 2A receptor agonists that they are able to like propagate this very widespread mm -hmm. uh, increase in cortical plasticity. So this whole neurogenesis, the whole uh, interconnectivity of the brain versus the numbing of the brain is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. yeah so, and I think that there's really, you know, it, it's it's two parts of, of, of a whole. So we, we have this hallucinogenic capacity of these drugs and that that hallucinogenic capacity may be ideal for individuals who are going through these you know deep-seated traumas and you know reasons to unwind how they have you know come to these psychiatric conditions um and that's obviously really essential when then integrated in with the psychedelic assisted therapy so in the integration sessions where you're working with your therapist who can start to you know delve through these thoughts and feelings that may have been you know undercovered and pushed away into the you know the the deep into the psyche and you know these are becoming you know re-emerged mm -hmm. in your brain and in neuroscience we we say that there's a, a phenomenon called um reconsolidation which is where you take a memory that's already been instilled and consolidated into the into the neural networks of your brain and <laughs> then it becomes um activated again mm -hmm. through the process of of reconsolidation and then new information can be built into that already established memory and then that can influence your behavior going forward so you have a very traumatic memory full of emotion but mm -hmm. uh, it's that reframing of the memory and understanding that plasticity is essential for that pr entire process of you know, reawakening the the traumatic experiences or, or the memory, and then also consolidating with mm. new information put into it. Mm. So there's that yeah. aspect that I see as being essential with the you know potentially with the hallucinogenic uh, drugs, uh, the psychedelic drugs. But however, there's Still evidence that the plasticity process is that really key element and uh, if drugs are working without that hallucinogenic capacity mm -hmm. but still invigorating neuroplasticity mechanisms then that creates a way that people can potentially utilize these newer drugs without that hallucinogenic effect that they can take in the home that there is a more chronicity they don't have to go to a specific you know center or doctor to be administered those drugs there's increased safety and people will be able to have that increased exposure to them and also for individuals who potentially you know, have a history of psychosis or family history of psychosis which would be you know not allowed as you know, they, they, they're excluded from you know, taking these drugs, that that would open up the field to, to allow it, those individuals to be able to take these drugs without the risk of you know, psychosis or you know, loss, of, loss of reality that is, is you know, so important for, for drug developers to be able to really harness. Mm. So what? Uh, it's so funny because, uh, and it's wonderful everything you're saying. Because I'm, I got a couple of images in my head, which is sort of like you know the idea of trauma being implicit or explicit, 
and how much trauma is implicit. So we have the emotional feeling to it, but we don't have the narrative and we don't have the words. So it's sort of like a ball of thread, right? You know, and what I hear you saying is the ability to um, quiet down the default mode network, uh, allow the individual to go ahead and do some deep work or at least understand what their traumas are to get some narrative around that. And then to take that thread and to sew something different, to sew a different story, a different narrative, so that it's more explicit, so that that individual can then um, accept themselves, be present to whatever their present story is, whatever their narrative is, and then you know use that, use that non-hallucinogenic as a way to just be present uh, and to go ahead and be buoyant during their day and to go ahead and face the world in a in a different way is that does that does that resonate with you in in terms of my my my, my feedback did i get it right yeah yeah, yeah. I, I think that you know yeah. we we understand now that plasticity is both a good thing and a bad thing though mm. as well. So it's being very mindful of the fact that you know if you do enhance plasticity in in the brain, it has to be then shaped in the way that you want it to be because mm. you you don't want necessarily, you know, loads of extra plasticity and then an individual to you know have their, their psychedelic therapy and then you know just go out into the world and start doing all these things that Hug, these behaviors yeah. that are actually detrimental hugging the, hugging the gas station attendant yeah <laughs> but yeah and and i also think around like the default mode network as well I mean, there's there's research now i know that it's you know very closely involved in, in mind wandering and that um it's you know obviously from the from studies that with neuroimaging that have shown that there is this you know taking the the default mode network on offline a bit more but i see the default mode network in the brain as being really important like it's a switch between you know the salience network and you know the attentional network and so it's also a very plastic network in itself so it, it's you know, it's important in terms of that it, it, it's exercised in a way that you switch constantly between you know mm. different networks of the brain that are important for your daily function mm. and that you know if your brain is stuck in one mode mm -hmm. too much and it's you know like a muscle it like it, it increases hypertrophies mm -hmm. so um you know, like when you see tennis players and they've got one arm bigger than the other because they, they exercise that side so much more than the other. Mm -hmm. But it's it's the balance. It's getting that back into into homeostasis and having you know a a, a more even playing field in the brain and you know being able to use these neuroplastogens psychoplastogens to to rebalance aspects of of neuron networks mm -hmm. and um, and build up those networks that may be hypotrophied uh, hypotrophied uh, <laughs> you know the, the ones that are less exercised and you know trying to restore that into the brain
Right. So, so what I hear you say is certainly, uh, you know, and I've heard people talk about the default mode network sort of as our ego center, right? You know, it's the area that really uh, helps us to manage and control our lives in a way that, you know, we can function in the world, right? And then, you know, what I hear you saying, it's okay to take that offline, but you need that. You know, mm. it may, you may, you may need that offline to go ahead and do some deep work where you go into your subconscious mind and you start looking at what happened to you when you were two years old or whatever, you know, but you need to come back and you need to then have that re that, that, that reframe, as you, as you said, uh, which then allows you to integrate or activate the changes that you see in, you know, through the medicine. Um, you know, and I'm wondering, you know, when you look at psychedelics and this whole area of, you know, neuroplasticity and the brain, you know, how how is that going to possibly lead to treatments for the this neurological or newer, you know, generative disorder area? How, I mean, is it like microdosing? Will people need to take, you know, a little bit every day? You know, what are your thoughts around that? Because a lot of people might think that, you know, this is just another SSRI. You've got to take it every single day. You know, this is something that, you know, it's not like one and done. But I'm, I'm just wondering from your view as a, because <clears throat> I'm a, as a psychedelic assisted therapy provider, I'm very focused on the structure of the set setting and you know the integration and the activation areas i i i think it's okay for psychedelics certainly for some folks in a sacred environment or however they're using them uh but you know the safety and the efficacy rates are very important from my view so how are we going to use this um these psychedelics to go ahead and help individuals change their their lives and and what are your thoughts around you know the structure around that specifically yeah, um, it's something that I think about so much of the day uh, in terms of being able to understand how you know a neurodegenerative disorder is set up and in the brain. So that it's I think of that as being you know it's a continuous process that it's not just going to be halted through medication. Um, it's you know, as as it stands, the the importance is that you know we can have these neurodegenerative conditions. They're ongoing, and medications are coming in. And the function of the medication is to either start to reverse damage that has been done, or to you know, stop damage going forward. And with psychedelics i can see that their utility would be in boosting plasticity that may help with compensation around you know damaged circuits damaged neurons you know helping the brain to adapt and rewire more rapidly to be able to compensate for for damage that has been set up um as i was saying that they have this incredibly potent anti-inflammatory capacity we need to do still more experiments to understand whether or not that you know extends into the brain in as potent a way as previous studies have shown particularly in you know, peripheral tissues mm -hmm. um and again a lot of those studies were conducted you know in tissues and cells and mice whether or not those actually then do translate through to to humans is is important mm -hmm. i would like to see 
In terms of my own personal preference, I think it would be great for you know, individuals who have neurodegenerative conditions or uh, you know, neurological conditions that you know these are detected early, and it's a way of like halting the further progression. And it could be that you know you have your dose of your psychedelic-inspired drug every month. It may be you know at six months treatment in the same way that you know people are having. Um, certain treatments with biologic agents mm -hmm. um you go into a clinic and you have your infusion mm -hmm. um i think learning a lot from how the new alzheimer's drugs have been you know, um, useful as well in terms of the the amyloid the the pathogenic amyloid pathologies that are setting up um again these are you know infusions where people are going into a clinic and having that mm -hmm. and i would hope that mm -hmm. there would be the option that mm. even individuals don't have to go into a clinic that you these are things that can be administered at home because i think it's you know that provides the accessibility for mm -hmm. individuals further um so it sounds to me like more like uh uh, the you know and i use this term a lot the reboot reset reframe the opportunity to go ahead and clean out the cache you know be uh, go ahead and rewire you know the brain really allow the brain to refresh itself have a little bit of a uh, a reboot and then you know that in and of itself might be enough for the individual rather than numbing themselves on an ongoing basis really now when you say uh when we start talking about inflammation you know one of the things that comes up for me and certainly that's going to be one of the big topics of the conference is the whole area of longevity and the whole area of uh, looking at um, looking at dead cells within the body, looking at refreshing the body along that line. Are are are, are we thinking that there is an opportunity here? Uh, and you've mentioned Alzheimer's and you know uh, dementia for that matter might be you know looking at these um, what are they what are they called? Not alien cells, but they're called uh, and exactly what say that again senescent cells senescent cells yeah these are these are the dead cells pretty much so right zombies, zombies. that's dead. it the zombies dead. yeah the zombie cells <laughs> right so so there is this idea of being able to flush those out and being able to have you know um uh, regrowth and reconnection within the brain is there some hope around that in terms of longevity and in terms of you know your view when, when i when i hear when i hear uh, inflammation that's automatically what i think of because a lot of aging is around inflammation yeah yeah i mean, i think that, that there hasn't been any studies yet really linking um psychedelics and the the presence of these these senescent cells in the brain but from my my knowledge around you know, aging and diet nutrition that there's a real push towards you know flushing out these senescent cells or zombie cells as people call them because they're just wasting space effectively mm -hmm. they're just there and they're not contributing and and so it's it's important to try and you know, not have those present in the in the body and i see it really as being like you know almost a garden 
that you don't want these like dead weeds taking up space or dead leaves all over the the floor just you know stopping what's below having nutrients and air, you know sunlight mm. to be able to to nurture you know new growth right and right i i see it as that you could really harness both the you know anti senescence and you know getting rid of these uh cells which i believe from some of the protocols that i've seen around them is sort of a almost a a monthly um protocol where you take various supplements or mm. or treatments that can start to mm. to get rid of these cells as they they, they accumulate generally wow. um so taking those and then having you know fresh pastures almost to you know, tilled soil ready to right. uh you know grow new You're using all of my analogies here i've got <laughs> you know, like you know our life is like a garden you've got to put down a lot a lot of manure you got to dig it up make sure you use it as fertilizer then you got to seed feed weed and grow yeah. your garden you know and you got to continue to do that so yeah, is that wouldn't that be great? And sign me up for that monthly cleanse. I'm, I'm. <laughs> yeah, and, and then we can think about our psychedelics as maybe being like Miracle Grow. They're the fertilizer. Uh -huh. That you know, we've already got the the neurons there, um, but helping them to you know sprout new connections. Or in the case of in the in the hippocampus. Um, there's been studies, at least in in mice and rats, that have shown that neurogenesis is actually enhanced by the the treatments with the DMT in particular, and the you, know, you get this birth of new neurons that are really highly plastic and ready and willing to integrate themselves into new neural circuits and encode new memories. So um, I think that that's obviously really important and thinking about psychedelics as being something that can you know invigorate those processes but you know to to clear out the the mess beforehand just allows things you know to to work that much more efficiently right right well i've added miracle grow to my to my, <laughs> to my analogy you know and to be able to flush the garden and to be able to go ahead and Re, re reinvigorate it with a little bit of miracle grow on a monthly basis i love that that's <laughs> that's really great but you know i i i do see uh and i'd like your focus on this your your view on this because what we're talking about is still very you know it's very controversial in a lot of in a lot of areas and i know there's a lot of challenges you know that need to be addressed what do you see as some of the uh, you know challenges that do need to be addressed and you know um how are we going to how, how are we dealing with them because uh you know i do want to recognize uh you know roland griffith just passed on he was an amazing man who really uh spearheaded a lot of the work uh, on john johns hopkins uh in terms of research and uh development and you know he's actually helped normalize a lot of the acceptance in this area but you know what are, what is your view of some of the challenges you know you use this monthly if you will if i went back to that that grow you know i mean what are the challenges that individuals face because at, we're at a very crucial time in terms of the renaissance in terms of the growth and i i do feel that we're not far away from mainstream but we're still not there uh can you give some perspective on that 
Yeah, I am. I think one of the main challenges is really faced at the moment with the clinical trials that we're trying to run mm -hmm. rigorous clinical trials with these compounds that haven't been really clinically investigated in this kind of way. So it's almost like the standard for uh, a clinical trial to be accepted by the FDA mm -hmm. is a different format to which these drugs are able to provide. It's like the issue with blinding. So uh, a gold standard randomized clinical trial is that there's double blinding, which means that neither the investigator nor the patient who subject who's uh, volunteering for the for the study knows what treatment they are receiving. Hmm. But if that treatment basically functionally unblinds itself due to its inherent properties of being potently hallucinogenic, mm -hmm. you have no blinding. And it's almost like then FDA, who are you know in the way the the gatekeepers to allowing these therapies and drugs to be you know, become mainstream, have to reevaluate based on like a whole different playbook. Mm. So it's 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 a rule. It's it's like playing two different games. So mm. there. FDA is used to playing basketball, but you know we're coming in and being like, "Oh, hey, so this isn't going." Yeah, <laughs> we're going to play baseball, and it's 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 very complex in that way. And also the so, the so let me let me just get, let me get clarity on that. So what you're saying is that the the playbook, if we will, if we're using that game analysis analysis, uh, if the playbook for psychedelics that have a uh, hallucinogenic quality to it is different than the playbook that would use psychedelics without that hallucinogenic quality and that both of them are double blind so but there's a different uh, there's a different thing that we're looking at specifically with the non hallucinogenic quality than we are with the hallucinogenic quality did I get that right or Help me to understand that a little bit. Uh, more. In general, just looking at, I mean, if we think about the psychedelics without the hallucinogenics, mm -hmm. uh, they won't suffer from the same mm -hmm. blinding issues as the the psychedelics with hallucinogenic mm -hmm. capacity. Mm -hmm. um, the issue is at the moment that our our, our FDA is mm -hmm. tailored towards medications uh for for approval of these clinical trials these medications tend to not have hallucinogenic capacity right. so what they're looking for in terms of their gold standard of a clinical trial cannot be reflected in a clinical trial conducted with you know, a classic psychedelic or ibogaine or mm -hmm. ketamine for example because of this inherent property that they will induce hallucinations and therefore how do you blind that in an individual um you know there's been various you know niacin as a placebo or you know giving people um you know mm -hmm. you know just just negating how how you want to so you're to, clearly hallucinating you're clearly yeah. in that process so how are you going to double blind that you know yeah. it's you, you can't is what i hear yeah now. and i think that that means that you know 
the classic psychedelics, I mean, the, the research that's been done with, you know, for example, compass pathways is the most um, far down the line of the, with, with the, the synthetic psilocybin. Um, they're really paving the way and these they're like pioneering how to run these clinical trials with these hallucinogenic drugs because they're facing all the challenges along the way because they're meeting with the fda and the fda is saying oh no you've got to do this and right. oh like this this is the standard that we're looking for um and that's been a really big challenge and means that it is in fact also slowing down how rapidly these drugs can even with breakthrough right. potential get right. approved then to to allow you know general access to right. them through the through prescription mm -hmm. um so i think it's it's really like going into a new frontier mm -hmm. and importantly as well it's the you know, you've got the blinding issues you have you know the the, the drug itself how currently if they're being investigated for mental health disorders that you have such a, a robust therapeutic aspect to it as well so you're seeing improvements even in the uh, placebo group because mm -hmm. again they're getting such you know great support in terms of the integration sessions and and meeting with their their therapists and i think that you know you, even with studies of um, Mike Bolgenschultz's studies with the alcohol use disorder and psilocybin there, that again, you're seeing improvements in both groups. So you, even your control group is showing improvement. So it's... Right. Well, it's, you've, got, you've got two therapists on, uh, you know, the requirement is for two therapists in the room. I mean, you know, that is, you know, in and of itself, um, having that kind of attention and having that opportunity to go ahead and work through whatever issues you have yeah you'll see some improvements but i think your point is 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 well taken you know because i don't know how sustainable you know the fda has these requirements for two therapists in the room you know a certain amount of uh, number of sessions before after so on and so forth but when you get down to the one set one therapist yeah you know, how, how are you going to afford the treatments for these, especially when you have six hours in some cases, if you're depending upon what you're using, ketamine, an hour, you know, uh, psilocybin, six hours, MDMA, four to five hours, you know, exactly. You know, so how do you how do you negotiate these things? And I think there's got to be a more stable, a st more stable way of doing it. And I think your point being is that that's slowing down the that's slowing down the uh, efficacy rates or the or the acceptance rates um, and the legalization quality. But yet at the same point, we do have that huge stigma where you've got a large part of society that still thinks that these are evil. You know, never the mind that Ibogaine is now shown to, you know, help with opioid addiction. Or, you know, there's Kentucky has put $42 million into a study. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we can kind of point to. But these are real uh, ethical considerations uh, in deciding, you know, you know, what other kind of ethical things do you see kind of in this particular space that really need to be looked at? You know, I talk about the structure of the medical model, but yet at the same point, we do know 
that once we start taking a look at, you know, MDMA was fast tracked, we're looking at hopefully uh, legalization at the beginning of this next year sometime. Um, but there, at the same point, there's a whole underground market and there's still not a lot of education around a lot of this. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are around that, because, you know, I'm on an Instagram account. If I put anything out there on psychedelics, suddenly I've got people who are friending me that are selling psychedelics, you know, like that's, that's weird. Uh, you know, it's just strange. <laughs> Yeah, uh, totally. And I think that, you know, some of the ethical considerations really lie in the accessibility when even these hopefully you know, FDA approval, you know, just the, the cost to insurance companies, like will insurance companies actually support the, the cost of these treatments? Because as we were saying, there was so much involvement of the, you know, in terms of the the time involvement of the therapists and individuals having to be present um that's a a large burden price wise on somebody's you know when it comes down to their hours and the then if it only becomes accessible at these very high prices will insurance companies support them beyond that for for individuals you know, potentially um veterans will their insurance cover mm -hmm. their mm -hmm. therapies and or will it just come down to again that the insurance company looks at it goes well you have major depression um maybe just try this other antidepressant mm -hmm. and you know or you have huge chunks of money that you have to co-pay mm -hmm. to support these um these new modalities of therapy um which again what if people don't have insurance right because right. you can't work because you've right. been you know crippled by ptsd uh, or you know depression has has led to you know loss of job and mm -hmm. other ailment ailments that prevent you from accessing healthcare. Right. Right. i think that's a, a major issue and i think it's one that's going to be addressed at in the forefront in Australia at the moment, where the de well, downscheduling of MDMA and psilocybin has definitely you know brought to attention the potential for their their use, right? But almost that the infrastructure wasn't ready for that change, and even though you know they had months to to right. start to establish, but you know this is again a. Australia is a country where they have a, a very established, you know, uh, public health system, mm -hmm. but they still have private. These you know therapies are going to be private, not taken by you know. How do you get Medicare to cover that? Right. Um, right. And we're talking about plants here. You know, we're talking yeah. about things that <laughs> grow. Things that, things that you can grow in your backyard. Like, give us some education. Give us some. You know protocols give us some uh, opportunity to go ahead and test what we get if we you know go ahead if somebody else sells it to us and we go ahead and we don't know specifically what we're getting give us the opportunity to test it give us a understanding as to how we can keep our kids safe give us you know all of these things i think we can get buckled down so much with these you know with the infrastructure i i do believe that individuals who are suffering from trauma i'm a vet 
And, you know, I'm a member of the Heroic Hearts Project and, you know, as a healthcare ambassador. And I do believe that we should be treating our vets here in the U.S. or onshore, not have to take them down to Costa Rica or Jamaica or down to Peru or wherever. You know, what kind of safety or efficacy are they getting there? Obviously, you know, we do look into that. But why should they have to go somewhere else? Why doesn't the healthcare system recognize that, you know, one, two, three, four treatments, you know, you don't need to go ahead and take the SSRIs all the time and, you know, you can, you can cure PTSD. So it's, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that's going on. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm really just, you know, hoping that we can move beyond uh, that in, in terms of, you know, treatment. Now, I do want to ask you about something that's weighing, um, you know, inter I've been wanting to ask you because I know that you're um, really very much focused in terms of uh, the whole idea of diet and brain function. And I'm wondering, as we start to take a look at, you know, psychedelics or these, um, these you know, uh, uh, entheogens that really help to open up the mind and open up the body for connection, what the impact of specific diet might be on the individual, whether or not they're male or female, and whether or not that plays a role as well for the individual in terms of what their outcomes might look like. Yeah, my research prior to uh, entering into the psychedelic space, uh, I was a neuropharmacologist and behavioral neuroscientist, and my academic lab uh, we focused on how diet affects the brain and it all really rooted around changes in plasticity again um, and the again in a similar way to psychedelics and and other pharmacological agents food itself and in particular how our modern day diet with these you know ultra processed foods high in fat high in sugar how that has a detrimental effect not just systemically across the body but also in the brain and one of the key aspects of my research was that high sugar diets uh in particular where liquid sugar is consumed like you know oh. drinks um and you know, not even alcohol i mean when we look at it it's uh you know this but what kids are drinking in terms right, right, of right. a diet coke or whatever you know mm -hmm. yeah um these sugar sweetened beverages because mm -hmm. there's such a high concentration of sugar that in its liquid form basically is able to evoke numerous physiological changes in the body and one of the key aspects was that it's reducing neuroplasticity in the brain as well as also increasing inflammation in the brain mm -hmm. and these two go hand in hand uh to impact on cognition particularly around systems in the brain that are essential for decision making uh, attention you know, our executive functions in the prefrontal cortex and also our hippocampus which is the memory center for encoding new information coming in and forming these new memories and critically what the research and um, my research contributed to was that these ultra processed foods are terrible for our brains but they're cheap and readily accessible by so many people and if you're busy and 
you know, don't have time to cook or can't cook very well or don't have access to fresh food that these these are these are there and this is what people consume mm -hmm. and that we know that reductions in neuroplasticity and increases in neuroinflammation go hand in hand to predispose individuals to mental health conditions mm -hmm. like depression anxiety also potentially you know, increasing risks of neurodegenerative disorders and mm -hmm. dementias so when we think about with psychedelics that people do have these changes to their outlook mm -hmm. but in that stage where the brain is again plastic this window of plasticity is being unlocked by uh, a dose of psilocybin mm -hmm. being able to feed the brain then and the body with nutrients that it needs and craves to be able to provide it again with the best mm. possible environment in which to reap the benefits of this enhanced plasticity mm -hmm. be it you know having high omega-3s which we know are essential for um, making our, our neuronal membranes fluid and that allows the the, the process of changing increasing uh receptors in mm -hmm. the, the neurons or making new dendrites and um you know synapses so we need that right and i think that some of the shifts in people's mentality that's so important that happens during these psychedelic therapies needs to be married with that holistic health mm -hmm. that nutritional knowledge of what you should be eating how this can you know, help providing people with the tools and the knowledge to be able to make those you know changes as permanent as possible and mm -hmm. also integrating in your movement and exercise we know that aerobic exercise is great for increasing bdnf mm -hmm. we also know that psychedelics increase bdnf but it, it's essential for neuroplasticity right. and by then you know having these shifts in perspective that you're know, an individual who's suffering from major depression you know, just for them to be able to you know get up in the morning and go out for a walk and eat a healthy breakfast eat healthy foods and i feel that the psychedelics are you know that catalyst that starts this process but it's a process. It's right. not just a one and done. Mm -hmm. Your treatment's over. Everything's fixed. It's mm -hmm. it's not like that at all. Right. So there's this whole idea of set setting uh, integration. The uh, you know somebody goes into uh, look at uh, using psychedelics to go ahead and help them with. Uh, some trauma or go ahead and help them uh, realign or reset themselves uh, for uh, a change in their life that they want to commit to uh, or they want to just actually work things through, if you will. You know, they need that time. But to go through it, you know, there's like that rubber band effect is what I'm hearing is you if you go through it, you know, there is that and you go back to eating bad food, you know, whatever you're eating and you go back to the old behaviors you know, then the impact or the benefits aren't there. You know, really the opportunity is, as you noted, when you're in that neuroplasticity moment, to be able to reset, reboot, reframe, and then activate 
those reframe that reset that you're looking for that reboot that you experienced into your life that's so important and food has a real uh a real play in that uh and essentially what i heard was also sugars whether or not that's carbohydrates simple carbohydrates or whether or not it's simple sugars that you might find in you know drinks or even in some juices you know which are you know I mean, I, I couldn't believe in some of these little wonderful, little juicy things that uh, our grandkids get, you know, they come up and say, I say, well, how many grams of sugar in there? And they say, oh, 12 grams. I said, 12 grams in a little container? I said, no, no, you know, 12 grams is, you know, that's three, four, three tables, uh, three teaspoons of sugar that you've gotten there. We're not, you know, so it's, it's everywhere and it really does impact and throw us offline and you know, really um, uh, cloud the brain and cloud the cognition, as you say. Let me ask you, um, I, as we start to wind down here, uh, I'm wondering uh, a couple of things. I'm wondering, you know, what you see as the future of psychedelic research and where you think we're going. Obviously, you'll have your panel down in Miami at the conference. And, um, um, you know, the, we talked about the relationship between the diet and the brain. But also, you know, in your own life, you know, this is the mindfulness experience. You know, I came into psychedelics through my practice of mindfulness. I've been, obviously, I tried psychedelics over 50 years ago. I have had that in my life over the years to go ahead and reboot, reset, reframe, and give me perspective. And here I am today, I do believe in a fully comprehensive lifestyle, which really incorporates mindfulness. Do you have a practice a mindfulness practice of yourself for yourself maybe you can share that and also um before that obviously talk about what you where you think we're going if you're okay with that and uh i do want to get to how people can get a hold of you and find out about your research as well so a lot there <laughs> to unpack sorry okay so, <laughs> um future uh -huh. i feel like there's going to be you know, a, a lot more in terms of you know accessibility to psychedelics but also i hope to see clinics becoming mainstream that aren't just you go in and have your therapy sessions and your, your psychedelics but you have that support network around you as well of, of you know this is integrated into mm -hmm. you, know, you have lifestyle advice as much uh, and coaching and support systems really there and even having those educational seminars to be able to empower people to you know when they're involved in you know, this is this is a much more holistic care setting than just you know going in having an having an infusion or going in having your your psychedelic therapy and then your requ required two integration sessions afterwards be it one immediately afterwards and one via zoom you know it's um right. it's it's having these you much more encompassing clinical spaces mm -hmm. and what really excites me as well is around you know neurotech mm -hmm. and how there is so much emerging awesome neurotechnology that can not only enhance plasticity itself but start to diminish neuroinflammation altering uh you know, inflammation in the body and having that at hand as well to be able to be 
accessed by individuals to, again, assist with plasticity, shape that plasticity in the appropriate way for them. Mm -hmm. So be it that you know, somebody, you could use um, transcranial stimulation or TMS, trans, um, magnetic stimulation, where you're really altering the function of the brain at you know it, its most core level and understanding you know using functional neuroimaging as well where the brain is potentially hyperactive or hypoactive mm -hmm. due to the the condition that an individual is experiencing mm -hmm. and then using both the psychedelics as the catalyst mm -hmm. to get the plasticity underway but then using stimulation techniques mm -hmm. to shape it further mm -hmm. to you prolong the 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 durability of the treatment you know, and having people being able to do these things in their own home mm. I think is really important as well and for clinicians to be able to then track the use mm -hmm. of these devices as well so remotely can, yeah to, to have this sort of lifestyle modification aspect mm -hmm. of being able to as you as we sort of started you know designing you know the vi visualization being in the being in the uh, simulation flight simulation of your life and then being able to actualize it um wouldn't that be kind of cool you know, yeah 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 if it if everyone could afford it though and what about your own mindfulness practice do you have a practice yourself that you use? yeah so i love to do yoga um i find that you know, that's that's very sort of grounding for me um as well as you know being outside in nature is one of again a really key aspect of mindfulness for me just being able to expose myself to the elements and nature and see what's around and not be listening to a podcast or music or sat in a car just be really just one just walking and moving um i'm a, a fidget so i find just that very still meditation difficult um but i definitely think that uh, there's this yoga and movement and integration of mindfulness within that right. breathing practice yeah. yeah yeah exercise and being able to you know really engage in strenuous exercise where you are just entirely focused on your breath and what's going on and your 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 somatic feelings within your your body is incredibly important to me as well mm. um, and i've been practicing a bit more with um again integrating in neurostimulation mm -hmm. through um a, T, uh, a tdcs device with which it incidentally what kind of a device is that what what is uh, that transcranial direct current oh, stimulation okay all right um so it's also stimulating default mode network mm -hmm. while engaged in sort of a, a calm meditative mm -hmm. Uh, environment are you using uh, lights or are you using a, a, a cap or uh, what 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 are you using sort of a headband a headband okay yeah like um and and also i found very it seems very strange but that soothing would be binaural beats mm -hmm. i find have oh, been yeah. incredibly helpful mm -hmm. in focusing um Mm -hmm. more more at work just you know when you have that deep work mode that you have to like settle into right. definitely found that the the gamma frequency uh binaural beats is in a way uh a way of helping your brain focus by again yeah. sort of engaging those appropriate networks getting yeah. the, 
the galaxy oscillations <laughs> going and um and really helping to to make yourself productive and then being able to shut off that's great that's great so let me ask you dr reichelt uh or amy if you if you don't mind uh but uh let me ask you how do people get a hold of you to find out more about your work and uh, about your research and uh, about what you're up to yeah so my website is uh, cognitionnutrition.ca mm-hmm. um, i work at pure minds neuropharma as their chief innovation officer so i'd encourage you to look at what um, we're doing on our website uh, at pure minds mm-hmm. um i'm also on instagram as i think nutritional underscore neurosci um i don't twitter or x or whatever that is anymore mm-hmm. um but yeah i can be be reached right. at my website and yeah it's been really wonderful talking to you today as well <laughs> and, uh, and we'll make sure we put those uh, websites in the show notes so that we've got everything uh, and people can get a hold of you I want to again thank you so much for for being here and uh i i know a lot of things have gone on today so thank you very much amy yeah, really no worries thank you again it's been a delight chatting to you thank you dr reichelt for joining the mindfulness experience podcast and for sharing your insights on the fascinating topic of the neuroscience of psychedelics and its potential use in treating neurological and neurodegenerative disorders we're thrilled to have you speaking at the wonderland 2023 conference and we encourage our listeners to attend the conference using the mindfulness code mindfulness 20 for a 20 percent discount of the registration cost We wish you all the best in your future research endeavors, Dr. Reichelt, and for everyone else, stay mindful.